After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. Well, good morning, covenant. It's good to see everyone. I want to start this morning by giving you a question and giving you a few minutes, or not minutes, so I guess I should say seconds, maybe 30 seconds or so, to kind of answer it by talking to each other. I, I want you to do something very simple. You know, what, what's, the, what's our name? We are what? Covenant Church, right? Um, here's a question, and I want you to answer it by turning to the person next to you and just kind of tell them what you think, okay? What is a church? How would you define church? Go. <clears throat> All right. Hopefully none of you said a dysfunctional version of the Adams family or something like that, okay? Uh, I want to put before you a definition. This is partially my own definition, uh, partially one that I, that I got from somewhere uh, years ago. I don't remember where, so I can't give credit, but I modified it some. And, and here's how, if you ask me, I would define it. It's a gathering of Christ followers and their children in a local community that voluntarily submits to the godly leadership of elders and who sit under the biblical preaching, the preaching of the biblical gospel and the sacraments as members of the universal church of God. That's exactly what you said, right? That's exactly what you said. Uh, you, know, you know why I like that definition? That has both the big C and the little C concepts in it, right? The big C, the, the big church, the church as a whole, the body of Christ, right? Um, the universal church of God. But it also emphasizes the little C, the little church, us, 
local churches because both of these concepts are in the scriptures. In fact, you know, most of the New Testament is written to local churches, right? And uh, a local church that is biblical, carrying out the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, it is the big C church to the locale in which they have been placed. And if you want to understand the big C church, you need to be part of the little C church. But you know, we actually have somewhat of a crisis in the American community today, in our, in our society, when it comes to church and being faithful and being a participant in a local church. What we're seeing more and more of, and it's reaching maybe epidemic proportions, is that within Christianity, being a part of a local church and being faithful to it is more of a tag-on value instead of a first primary priority of the Christian life. Um, studies are showing this in detail. Uh, there's been studies and, and surveys through the, through the decades. Gallup every year does a survey of the percentage of Christians that are part of a church who regularly attend, and they have been consistently coming out with this idea that hundred and roughly 50 million Americans regularly attend church, but sociologists of all stripes have now disputed this, and their data is, I think, incontrovertible, that actually it's about 50 to 52 million Americans are regularly involved in a church of some kind. And even worse, when you look at it from the perspective of percentage of Americans and, and put it in light of our population growth, our population is exploding in our nation, but our evangelistic efforts are not keeping track with the population growth. And so, whereas maybe in the 1990s, 25% uh, of, of Americans uh, consistently went to church. Now it's a much different picture, where in 2010, it's about 16.6% of Americans. And when this survey was, was put out, or when this projection was put out, here we are almost to 2020, and it's projected that it's 15%, and by 2050, 11.7% of Americans will regularly attend church. Now, if you are wondering how does this affect us, it's affecting us very much so. The average, one study has revealed, the average evangelical uh, today attends church 19 Sundays a year, 19 out of 52, which is roughly what it is for Protestantism as a whole, where those who are regular members of a Protestant church who consider themselves to be faithful attenders, they're attending about three out of every eight Sundays, which is around 20, 21 Sundays a year. And so what we're seeing according to every study, is that among the Christian community, there is a devaluing of participation in the church of Jesus Christ. It's an add-on, not a first priority. And so what's, what's resulting in this is our society is changing. In 2017, uh, the Barna organization, which runs all kinds of sociological studies, especially as they apply to Christianity and the church, said in 2017, here's the list of the most unchurched cities and regions in America. And the Melbourne, our, our area, uh, triangle of us, Daytona to Orlando, is the ninth largest unchurched region in America. Right? 
And now it even gets worse. They also said, how about de-churched? Now, unchurched, you know what that means, right? That means somebody who's never really had anything to do with God, with Christianity, been involved in Christianity or the church. The de-churched are people who were maybe raised in Christianity, who were parts of a church at one point, but now they have walked away and are doing their own thing. Now, when you can look at that definition, our region is the sixth most de-churched region in America. Okay? So we have a crisis. Uh, clearly, we need to plant more churches. And we need to start more churches simply, and if we're going to have any hope of keeping up with the population growth so that we can reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and church plants are proven over and over again to reach more non-Christians with the gospel than an established church does. And so we need to plant more churches. This was one of the reasons why we're sending out Ben and Alana this fall, and we're going to be doing this even more as part of our division of our church to plant 50 new churches over the next 10 years and help plant these churches with three to five of them being in our own backyard. And we really need to do more than three to five if what the studies are correct. At the same time, we have an obligation, I think, as, especially as a pastor, to do something, and that is prevent, hopefully within you, the de-churchification that takes place. I made that word up, okay? But you get what I'm saying, right? Why do people walk away? Because the foundation that they once had began to, uh, to crumble. It began to erode. And their thinking began to change. And why does this happen? At least in part, I think that's the, the, the result of the pastors in the pulpits not teaching and discipling their people over basic fundamental truths of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And one of those basic truths is the importance of the church to our everyday lives and to us as Christians and to our society. So for the next few weeks, I won't be here next week, I have a 35th year class reunion. And so I'm going to be over in the Tampa area where I graduated from high school. And Scott uh, Padilla is going to be bringing the message. So you guys make sure you come out and support him. But this week and then after I return, I'm going to bring a couple of messages in August with the purpose of helping hopefully just shore up our understanding of why the church. Why church? Why do we do this on Sundays? And why do we do this throughout the week? And why should it be a priority and not just a tag-on in our Christian walk? So this morning we're starting with this passage, with a beautiful image, right? A beautiful metaphor, the bride of Christ. Now listen, ladies, I don't want you to get mad at me about what I'm about to say, okay? But I have noticed through the years that your sex tends to get a little intense about weddings. Just a little bit, okay? I mean, the amount of energy and focus and uh, conversation and discussion and evaluation that you will put into the napkins at the reception, much less the dress or the cakes. I mean, I know someone who's going through a wedding planning right now, and I've been watching her on Instagram. And I mean, just all the bakeries they visited to find the exact perfect, is it donuts that were? Yeah, donuts, what a great idea. I could have solved that. I could have solved that in 20 seconds. We're going to Krispy Kreme, baby, right? That's what we're having. Done, right? 
We don't have to discuss and all that kind of stuff. It's done. But ladies, I, I get it. And, and guys, in fact, I was talking to, uh, I was talking to David Beckwith Wednesday night, you know, at the come together as they're marrying off Jamie uh, here in a, in a month or so. And I was talking to him and I just couldn't help but think about it. You know, guys, if you've ever given away your daughter, uh, I just, as I was talking to him, I was reminded of what Chuck Swindoll said when he gave away his first daughter. He said, it felt like I was putting a Stradivarius in the hands of a gorilla. Right? You know, there's something about weddings and, and things like that. So listen, when we come to this expression, the bride of Christ, our temptation is to filter it through our understanding of weddings and marriage and what we do in the, our 21st century America. And, and certainly there is some correlation there. But when we consider this expression, the framework that we have to look at it through is through the framework of a biblical Hebrew wedding, an Israelite wedding. This is what shapes our understanding and our identity as the bride of Christ. And so to understand this framework, let me give it to you real quick. A, a Hebrew wedding took place in three phases, right? The first phase, the first stage, was where the, there was an announcement of betrothal or engagement, which became official when the bridegroom would go to the father and he would pay the bride price or the dowry. And at that point, um, it, was, it was more than an engagement. It was actually under Hebrew law. It was, they were legally husband and wife, which explains a lot of why Joseph and Mary, they were betrothed. She becomes pregnant, and he knows it's not by him. And because he loved her, he tried to put her away silently, quietly, because legally they were husband and wife. And according to the law, if she committed adultery, she was supposed to be uh, stoned to death. And so he was doing that out of his love for Mary. But so the betrothal was a very, very serious time. You didn't just break this type of thing. And then there was a second stage. The second stage was a time of waiting and preparation when the, the moms and the daughters were checking out all the donut shops, right? And figuring out what font to put on the invitation and, and all the planning was going on during that. And, and that could be a longer period of time, a shorter period of time. It all depended upon oftentimes the, maybe the wealth of the family. And then it came to this third stage. The third stage was the actual marriage ceremony where the, where the bridegroom, would leave his home, his family home, and he would go to the home of the bride, and he would take her from the father's home, and he would take her to his home, and the marriage would be consummated, and then they would begin a seven-day feast or a wedding supper. Aren't you glad it's just one night? Your reception, that's a good change. For seven days, they would have this feast, a wedding supper. This is the framework that we need to understand the bride of Christ and how we interpret this phrase in Revelation chapter 19. And so when we consider it, we realize very quickly that during Jesus's earthly ministry, he completed our betrothal or this first stage. This first stage and this idea of the bride of Christ it was prophesied and it was announced in the Old Testament in several different places. One of, one of my favorite places is in Hosea, in chapter 2 of Hosea, where the prophet has a wife who is an adulteress and, a, and even a prostitute at some point, and there's this imagery here of, of Hosea playing the part of God and the wife being the people of God. 
And this is what God says to us. He says, in that day, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. This betrothal was announced. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it was affirmed by those who observed Jesus' earthly ministry. John the Baptist, in John chapter 3, his disciples come and they ask him about Jesus and what's taking place between Jesus' ministry and the fact that people are leaving John the Baptist's ministry and going to him. And John the Baptist responds with, You yourselves hear me witness, or bear, bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's announced in the Old Testament, affirmed by the greatest of the prophets, Jesus says, John the Baptist. And then, of course, it was accomplished by Jesus through his death, burial, and resurrection. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 is meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus. He knows that this is likely to be the last time he speaks with them or interacts with them and that he will soon die. And, and in that very tearful, emotional time together, we read these words that he said, pay careful attention, speaking to these elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus died for the church, obtaining it for himself with his own blood, John Frame writes. He paid for it with his own blood. He did not just die for individuals, he died for a people, a body, a bride, consisting of many people united in the bonds of a larger whole. See, it was announced in the Old Testament and affirmed during his lifetime, but what makes us the bride of Christ is because Jesus paid the bride price, our betrothal. You know, uh, within this last week, um, there were two stories in the media, one in Jackson, or excuse me, one in Florida, not Jacksonville, over on the West Coast, and uh, one in uh, North Carolina. And both of these stories uh, young fathers lost their lives attempting to rescue their children. In both cases, the families were walking along a body of water when the children uh, fell in to the, to the water, and the waters were being strongly affected by currents that were washing the children away. And the dads jumped into the water. In both cases, they grabbed their children. They were able to, to throw them out of the water to their wives who would then caught the children, but they themselves could not get out of the water, and both of the young dads lost their lives. You know, all of us understand what their sacrifice says, right? Their sacrifice says that their children were so precious to them that they did not hesitate to jump in and rescue their children, even at the risk of their own lives. So think about that, church. 
What does it say that Jesus knowingly, willingly went to the cross and died for us in order to pay the price of us being his bride? What does it say about the importance and the value of the church in God's eyes? We are his betrothed. We are the betrothed people of Jesus Christ. We're his bride. This first stage, it was accomplished through what Jesus did on the cross for us when he died and he rose and he ascended into heaven. This betrothal first stage is complete. And now we find ourselves in this second stage. This interval between the marriage itself and the, uh, and the mar- between the betrothal and the marriage supper. So what do we do? How do we live? How do we conduct ourselves? This is where our passage is so important because it shows us that as the bride of Christ, while we are waiting before anything else, the highest priority, first and foremost for us as we wait, is to worship our Lord. He says in verse 1, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, or literally, praise the Lord. This word, hallelujah, you know, in the entire book of Psalms, it appears 24 times. And these few verses, it appears four times. That's important. That repetition is saying, stand up, pay attention. I'm giving you something that you need to understand. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. You see, we worship this sovereign God who planned our entire wedding and he did it in such a way that he, he called us out of this group of people, which in the passage says is the prostitute. Now, what's going on here? He's judged this great prostitute who corrupted the earth with him her immorality and has, aven- and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Realize that we're in a part of Revelation where the previous chapters, you have this metaphorical figure known as the harlot or the prostitute and Babylon, and, and it represents all of the religious and political systems that humanity give their allegiance to, that humanity worships instead of the God of the universe. And so this is the context, this this comparison and contrast between the prostitute, the great harlot, and the bride of Christ. And he says, worship this God because salvation and glory and power belong to God. We worship him because he set us apart. He made us a member of the bride of Christ, whereas we were members of this body known as the prostitute. And why did this happen? It happened because he is the sovereign, gracious God who calls his people out, not because of any good in them, but because it brings glory to him. And so we worship this sovereign God who set us apart and he saved us. In verse 5, From the throne came a voice saying, Praise or worship our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, you who revere him, who are in awe of him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. We worship this God who called us out and made us a member of 
the bride of Christ instead of what we deserve, this family of the prostitute. But we also worship him because he's this all-powerful God who rules not only over salvation, he rules over all of creation, even the evil that this figure, Babylon and the prostitute, carry out throughout human history. He's sovereign over all of it. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. We worship God because he brings us to this wedding. He takes away our filthy clothes, stained by sin and corruption, and instead he clothes us with righteousness, the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of it imputed to us instead of our sins, and he brings us into his presence as a righteous, holy bride. We looked at this last week in chapter 21, that final picture where the angel says, let me show you the bride of Christ, the, the bride of the Lamb, and down comes this new Jerusalem, this perfect, glorious, beautiful city. The people of God, redeemed, made pure, who for all of eternity will enjoy the presence and the love of their bridegroom, the Lamb of God. We worship the sovereign God who planned this wedding. We worship the slain lamb, the bridegroom, who paid the bride price. Verse 10, at this, John fell at his feet to worship him, this angel. But the angel said to me, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. There it is, church. The primary thing we do while we wait for the marriage supper of the Lamb is worship all the law. All the prophets, all the scriptures, the very ministry of the Holy Spirit is given to us so that we will understand the importance of who we are as the bride of Christ, that we will understand how greatly our bridegroom loves us and what it cost him for us to be married to him. And we worship this Lord. That's our first priority. Earlier in the book of Revelation, we're given this, this insight into the throne room of God. One of, one of my, some of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Revelations four through six. In chapter five, you find the people of God and the angels and the elders, and they sing a new song saying, you, in other words, the lamb, the bridegroom, Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. What a beautiful picture that our, the bride of Christ is not made up of one ethnic group. It's not made up of one demographic group 
or one nation or tribe. It's the entirety of the earth is represented in this beautiful God. What a powerful, beautiful image and yet humbling at the same time this is when we consider that we didn't deserve any of it, when we consider that we have been made a member of the bride of Christ and what it took for this to happen, the only right, rational response is grateful worship of the bridegroom. Don't miss this connection, church. This is who we are. As his bride, right, we show our love for Jesus And we can show it in a number of ways. The scriptures teach us by serving him and telling others about him. And all these are right and true. But the most important way, the first priority, the way that we show our bridegroom, our husband, that we love him is by worshiping him together. You know, uh, I saw this week a headline that caught my eye. the headline said something like, a couple married for 71 years die on the same day. And so I couldn't pass that one up, right? 71 years. And so I clicked on it and I found out about this couple, um, Herbert DeLegle. He was 94 years old, lived in Georgia, and he passed away at 2 a.m. in the morning. And his wife, Marilyn, who was eight years younger than he was, passed away exactly 12 hours later at 2 p.m. They'd been married for 71 years. So I Googled them like any rational person would do. I wanted to find out more about them. And I found these videos. And one of them was them being interviewed last year at their 70th anniversary. And it was so cute because I had read the article first and their caretaker who was grieving over their death said, you know, the first time I walked into their house, I was embarrassed because they were like teenagers. She said, they're even worse than teenagers. They were always giggling and talking and laughing and touching each other and kissing all the time, you know? And, and she said, at first I was embarrassed, but then it grew on me and how much I loved this couple and their love for each other. And so with that being the context, I found the video and I watched the video where the television station went out and interviewed them at their 70th anniversary a year ago. And it was, they couldn't keep their hands off of each other. It was funny, you know? And, and of course, the, 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 the story, you know, the, the reporter asked them how they met and, and tells their story, and it's just really a sweet story. But inevitably, as she should have, the reporter asked, you know, what's your secret to being married for 70 years? I mean, that's a long time. What's your secret? And you can tell they had been married for a long time because they finished each other's sentence. He, he said the first part, he said, show your love, and she interrupted him and said, and be there for each other. What a great answer. Show your love and be there for each other. You know, that, that answer really does, if you think about it, it applies to us as the bride of Christ. Obviously, we're there for each other. We show our love and we're there for each other in our discipleship groups and our covenant groups and things. That's clear. That's part of what it means to be uh, a member of biblical community in our church. But we are there. We show our love. We're there for each other in a different way when we come together collectively to worship Him. Uh, we, we experienced this this morning. There is something about collective worship on Sunday morning. There's a, I don't only know how to phrase it like this, there's a magnification effect that takes place. 
That last song that we sang together corporately about the name of Jesus, what a beautiful name it is. Now listen, you could sing that in your shower and have a good old time with that song, or in your car or wherever it is you like to sing when you're by yourself. And it will be a blessing to you. But let me tell you something, there's no substitute for what we experienced this morning when all of our individual voices were gathered together collectively, the whole is something on a different level of magnitude than what happens at an individual time of worship. We can have special, sweet, incredible worship as an individual. But when we come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, a magnification effect occurs. It happened this morning. We... we the intensity of our personal worship changes when we come together collectively. I would suggest to you that it magnifies our experience of the Holy Spirit himself when we come together and collectively worship. It magnifies in our hearts the greatness of God and the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel. It magnifies and grows our love for one another and our sense of belonging and identity and family. That's what collective corporate worship does for us. That's just some of the things as we love and are there for each other. Church, this is so important. Why, why do you think one of the Ten Commandments says that we are to have a day where we set it apart from all other days and we worship God. A day of rest and worship that we keep holy. And in our context, as we see in the New Testament, it was changed from the seventh day, Saturday to Sunday in order to resonate with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This principle of coming together to giving to God the first day of the week, it's indispensable. So while we wait, one of the most fundamental ways we please Jesus, one of the most obvious, basic, foundational ways that we follow Jesus is to faithfully start our week by collectively coming together and worshiping Him. You know, in a few weeks, we're going to kick off a new ministry year. Um, I want to encourage all of us, those of you who are here, those of you who are in your pajamas watching it on the live stream, and those of you who are not here, I hope that you somehow miraculously hear this. I hope that in this coming ministry year, all of us would covenant together and resolve to be the worshipers of God collectively that God would have us to be. To actually not be an average evangelical today. To come together, to love, to show our love and be there for each other more than 19 times a year. Church, as your pastor, I love you. And here's one of the most important reasons why I hope that you will commit to this, that you will say no to those things that compete with your Sunday worship. You need your church, and your church needs you so we can worship together as the bride of Christ. And if this is not a first priority, let me tell you, you're courting disaster. 
in your Christian walk. Over time, the foundations will crumble. De-churched people didn't start out de-churched. But the slide from being churched to de-churched is a gradual slope of taking the corporate worship of God for granted, not understanding what the church is, with all of its good and bad and its successes and its failures. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to dig into that a little bit more, about the authority of the church, and why it's important to be in a local church, even when that local church is flawed, has its own issues. Because remember, the church is not a building. The church is people. And the last time I checked, I'm one of those people, and I'm a sinner. And so are you. And when you get a bunch of sinners together, it's never going to be perfect, is it? Not, on, not here on earth. But as we see this morning, our destiny is perfection. White robes of righteousness given by Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to begin this basic study that reminds us of how, how precious we are in your eyes, proven by the gift of your son Jesus who paid the ultimate bride price, sacrificing his life so that we can have eternal life. Lord, may, may we never take this for granted, but that we respond to the beauty of this identity that you've given us through heartfelt worship. Lord, I love Covenant Church. I thank you that you have brought together a group of people who can sing about your name with gusto and enthusiasm, who can open themselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit to, to lift hands or not lift hands, but to feel free to express their love to you. And Lord Jesus, we do love you. Help us to show this in a way that is compelling to those outside of our church who need to know the saving message of the gospel. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.